Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. Welcome back once again to another episode of DC Power Hour. Again, very excited to dive in here with with George and Alan on a great topic. Uh, We've covered battery room safety before, but we're going to get into it a little bit more detailed. And so uh, the ominous title of this one is How to Walk Out of a Battery Room dot 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 alive. Um, And I think it starts even when you walk in the battery room, right? George, why don't you... uh, kick it off for us today. Absolutely. Uh, You simply should not walk into any battery room unless you are accompanied by a person that is fully qualified or you are qualified yourself. Unfortunately, that's the rule that is most commonly broken. People seem to think they can walk in there and just uh, walk around. Sadly, we sometimes do lose somebody because of that level of stupidity, but uh, it it can be helped. Anyway, the, the, the whole point about the, uh, the title was that um, because we're seeing more and more battery rooms, because we're seeing different forms of battery rooms, we only have to look at the, uh, we're going to talk mainly about lead acid today, but uh, the, the problems they have with lithium. They've had to change the design of the uh, containers that the lithium, the, the bulk uh, battery energy storage systems are put into. Uh, they previously you had to enter them in order to do any work on them. Now uh, you open doors on the side to work on them because that's safer, especially if there's a fire or anything like that. And um, maybe we also need to uh, carry that on to ships uh, because I I now see that there is um, a belief that perhaps that uh, car carrier that's uh, floating out in the Atlantic Ocean at the present moment on fire Part of the problem may well be that it's carrying vehicles with lithium batteries in them. They're EVs. We no doubt we'll hear a bit more about that from Alan in, in one of his Did You Knows for our newsletter. But uh, the whole point is that batteries themselves are physically dangerous. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about all aspects of it. It's um, one of the things that I, 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 I worry about when I do talk about it on on training or work with people that I'm I'm working on a training session with then is the fact that the um, quite often, you know, especially if they're electricians, the normal comment is, well, we've done our safety training, we've done our rat flash training, and we know all about electric shock. Well, that's very good. And then you, uh, you start asking questions and they go, when you start talking about the fact that that actually is chemical, you've got to be concerned about it. There's a chemical risk to it. And uh, there's a, obviously an, an art flash shock. There's electric shock. And the point is that how these are handled within a battery room are different to the way they're handled in a normal electrical installation. And again, that's something that people don't understand. I think Alan will agree with me on that, won't you? Well, First, let me back off, George, here. When we say uh, battery room, for the context of this podcast, I'd like to look upon it as a battery location because more and more we're seeing batteries uh, put out in data centers uh, and other locations 
where there's located with other equipment, but sometimes located with personnel. So let's let's try and cover both. But uh, I think you mentioned, George, uh, there's a lot of things you, you need to be cognizant of when entering a battery room. Uh, I would say it starts before you enter the room. It starts with, uh, let's look at your clothing. Uh, you want to wear underwear cotton clothing. Uh, you don't want to wear your polyester disco shirts or Hawaiian shirts. Uh, you want to wear flame retardant, uh, long sleeve shirts, pants, depending on the situation. If you're doing an install or a de-install, de you need to wear proper protective clothing. You need to wear hard hat. You need to wear uh, steel toe shoes. Uh, you need to wear whatever, whatever the uh, job safety analysis requires. Uh, that's a, we call it a JSA card. So before you even go into the battery room uh, to do some work, you should have a job safety analysis done. You know, it's what hazards am I likely to be exposed to? Shock, chemical, uh, mechanical, list all the hazards you're supposed to be, uh, you could encounter. And not only that, you should have a statement of work. The statement of work should say exactly how you're going to do something, the procedure. So before you even go into the battery room, you've got to take into consideration all of those things. One thing George mentioned is that you should be qualified. Well, I take that a step further. You should have a person with you who is also qualified. The first thing you should do when you enter the room, well, first you know, check the, is check the uh, where the egress points are. How do I get out of that room if there's a problem? One of the other first things you should do before working on or near a battery is ground yourself and always discharge any static electricity you may have on your body. Uh, also look around and see where the main circuit, where the circuit breaker panels are. What do I need to do in an emergency? I look and see if it's an eyewash station, where's, where it's located. I look and see if we have a fire extinguisher, a proper type of fire extinguisher. Is it in calibration? The same with the eyewash station. Has it been calibrated? So there's a lot of things you can do before you enter the room and immediately upon entering the room. And least of all is uh, look at the job safety analysis, see what the voltage of the battery is. Is the battery above the safe working limits or the battery voltage above the safe working limits of the relevant uh, codes are in place, most commonly uh, NFPA 70E. So there's a lot of things you can do before you start working on the battery. So having said that, I'll hand it back over to George and see how he proceeds from here. Well, I, I'm good. I've already gone through exactly what you said. I've done my evaluation. And I think the, the, the only thing I see there is that you, you didn't quite miss it out. You, you, you didn't mention the idea. But before, especially if you're doing anything that involves the uh, removal, installation, uh, and connection to a battery, anything you're doing in that respect, you not only have to have a statement of work, but you should also go through what to do in the event that something goes wrong. Because, you know, my standard comment is that my friend Murphy has been with me all my career. 
and he's managed to get me into trouble quite a few times. But the key to getting out of trouble and not having a disaster in your hand is understanding what to do in the event that something happens. You know, if you if you ever listen to the on the uh, YouTube, there's quite often they've got these um, cameras in the cockpit of aircraft, and they talk about you know they they follow the the takeoff and the landings and of uh, passenger aircraft, and and what one of the things that always I always remember is is that when you're listening to them. Uh, the the person, whether it's the first officer or the captain, who's going to actually fly the to do the takeoff, they describe what to do in the event that they lose an engine or something happens during the takeoff. It's the recovery process. It's already decided how to do it. And you have to do the same thing. You have to understand exactly what it's going to take. Now, key to that is what Alan was talking about just now. Is the you have to know where any disconnects are. You have to know. Uh, Every aspect of what's available, where is the eyewash station? Has it been checked? You know, they, there are there are times that, um, either according to the rules, if you follow NFPA 70E, those eyewash stations should be checked regularly. But typically, they're not checked by MD involved in the battery maintenance side. It's part of the uh, the building management or building maintenance that checks the the, uh, especially if it's a permanently plumbed in one. But I'll admit, I have turned one on on one occasion, and I'll tell you what, I think I'd have preferred the acid than what came out of the eyewash. It was rust and everything else. Uh, it Put it this way, it would not have helped if I had got uh, acid all over me. Um, and the other thing is that if you have the portable ones, those are all uh, time-limited. So if you're going out to do battery maintenance or anything like that, you should have a spare cartridge with you that uh, you can replace in one of the, the, the stations because it, because if, if we're going to talk about the different aspects of uh, safety we need to consider uh, once you've got that uh, as Alan said once you've identified all the uh, the potential problem areas and how to handle them in the event that something happens then you have to start looking at the individual uh, safety requirements and the first one is obviously chemical because it doesn't matter whether we're talking about nickel cadmium or lead acid. Uh, both the electrolytes in those cases are highly corrosive. One's a strong alkaline, the other's a strong acid. And uh, you don't want to get involved or get any of that over you in any way. So make sure that you've got things, safety glasses on, glasses that go around the side of your your own personal glasses do not class, are not classed as a safety glass, uh, things like that. And know what, again, know what to do. Make sure that there is a, uh, a kit there that will allow you to uh, immobilize the electrolyte. Can you think of anything else you should add to that one, Alan? Yeah, I was just uh, walking through the process in my mind here. Uh, one of the things uh, you should do when you enter a battery room, especially a room, not just a location, is, is smell. Do you smell anything unusual? If you smell like to get that rotten egg smell, uh, you know what my advice is? is? Get the hell out of there. But, uh, you know, smell also. Uh, in the old days, I used to always look and see where the broom was. That may seem a mute point, but uh, the old-time wooden brooms, you could use that as a tool to pull somebody off a hot connection. Just think about it. You know, it was, it was insulated. But uh, the other thing uh, 
I would probably do is check my tools, check the tools and test equipment. Uh, you know, your test, if you're going to be using test equipment on the battery, check the leads are not frayed. Uh, check they're suitable for what you're going to do. The tools, are they insulated? Are they properly insulated or is it a PVC job? Or, uh, you know, uh, I had a, one instance I found out, not the hard way, but uh, I found out afterwards was that some people were, a previous company I was working for, because of the shortage of proper uh, insulated tools. When I say proper insulated tools, I mean manufactured tools uh, that you could go to a hardware store, like Home Depot or Lowe's, and you could buy this dip, uh, plastic dip. Uh, the problem was that plastic dip wasn't totally electrically resistant. It was uh, a hazard. You know, you could, uh, uh, you weren't really fully insulated. But uh, there are a couple of the other things I look at, George, before I even start working on the battery. You and I have been bitten a couple of times, I guess, by batteries. But uh, what concerns me more and more is the, uh, voltage of the batteries that we're working at these days. And, uh, you know, in the old days, when we were working mainly on telecom batteries, you know, there's 48 volts. And that's not really going to do anything to you. I used to have a party piece when I had a newbie working with me, and I'd, I'd go into a telephone room where there was a battery, small PBX, and I'd grab the positive and negative posts and watch the other guy what's a newbie kind of shudder, but I wasn't really going to do anything, anything, you know, damage anything because my body resistance was so high compared, you know, because of the, the low voltage. But uh, George, what, what, what are we, what are we looking at these days? We're looking at higher voltage batteries. So some special considerations have to be taken there. Oh yeah. Well, uh, as you said, when we start moving outside of the telecom or communications, as we want to call it now, the era uh, you're talking about then initially into the utilities where you're looking at 120 volt batteries. Uh, some of the smaller UPSs are now at uh, 250 volts. And within the US, any of our um, high, high power UPS systems are a nominal 480 volts. But you, then you're looking at 500 and something volts when the battery's on charge. But there has been a change to that. Up till this latest uh, version of NFPA 70E, which was uh, released last November, I believe it was, the safety voltage varied between 50 volts and 60 volts. Uh, at one point, it went to 100, and then it went back down to uh, 50 volts again, because uh, there's always an argument about what is really classed as a safe voltage. But the, uh, the latest version, as I said, that was released back in November, it has 150 volts as classed as a safe voltage. Now, you might say, well, is that really a safe voltage? Because it, theoretically, if you get it wrong, it could kill you. But it's a safe voltage in the sense that you do not have to wear, if you are not actually doing anything like disconnecting or connecting or measuring or doing anything with electrolyte, you don't. You can get away with not having to wear the full arc flash protection gear. Now, the, the advantage there is sometimes if you have to wear all the full gear, it's very, very difficult to do any form of battery maintenance. Unfortunately, 
it's not going to help the most difficult ones, which is trying to collect data from a battery cabinet, because the voltage there, if it's a UPS, is going to be above that 150 volt level. And uh, you're going to have to wear all the full protection gear in order to be safe. Later on in the podcast, George, we have a special guest coming on, uh, Ed Rafter. We're going to talk to him a lot about uh, safety on UPSs. Ed's uh, been around a long while, and he's probably an expert on this. But what I'd like to bring into the the conversation now is the, the fact that, okay, uh, NFPA 70E, well, NFPA 70, National Electric Code, uh, initially stated that, I believe it was, below 60 volts, or below 50 volts, really, was a safe working voltage. They had to change this a little bit because normal voltage of a 48-volt telecommunications communications battery was actually 54 volts because you had to charge it above the nominal voltage. But I'm glad to see that uh, NFPA 70E has gone uh, up to a sensible voltage of 150 volts. Uh, One of the problems with NFPA 70E, which is National Electrical Safety Code, is that uh, all of the testing that was done for arc flash uh, was based on AC systems, uh, AC voltages, shall I say. Uh, There was no testing done on DC voltages. So they were kind of searching in the dark and nobody really had any proof of anything. So I'm glad to see that they've gone up to uh, 150 volts. But uh, more importantly, I get concerned by the design of uh, some of the equipment uh, that houses batteries, uh, battery cabinets, which are really are, to me, uh, one of the biggest threats of safety in the battery room. and. Uh, we should have mentioned initially, there's one unique thing about batteries is that you can't de-energize them. And you read a lot of the safety codes and everything. It says, first of all, de-energize the equipment. You can de-energize a battery if you, if you put a wrench across the terminals, de-energize it pretty quickly. But you can, it's always, battery's always hot. So there has to be special consideration taken. In, and uh, I just get hot, hot and bothered about uh, uh, the fact that how they uh, put batteries in cabinets and racks that are not really safe. Uh, I almost got fired from uh, a previous company because I told them that we're doing it all wrong. But however, that's another story. So, George, you'd like to comment on that? Yeah, I'll, I'll comment on that. I, I know what you're saying, Alan, when you're talking about you know the, uh, the, the problem. You can't actually de-energize a battery. At that point, when, you, when, you're, when you're looking at it from that point of view, is that it's, you know, a two-volt cell can be dangerous if you short it out, if you happen to be in the wrong place when you're doing it. You know, you can be burned very badly with that. But the other problem is, is that all the R flash calculations, and I know there's work being done now in the producer, I think in the latest version of 70E, there is a table for DC in it. I haven't actually looked at it in any depth yet. But the whole, the big problem is that all the calculations for arc flash when it's in the AC side, uh, they're based on the uh, ability of the circuit breaker or the fuse. How long is it going to sustain the arc? You know, before that fuse or circuit breaker opens the circuit. And the other point is that 
you know, even if you if it does continue to say, even if the, the breaker doesn't break it, because an AC signal goes through zero current at one point, the arc will be extinguished as part of it. The problem is that when we start talking about batteries, A, there aren't circuit breakers inside each of the individual cells, and B, it's DC. There is no current that drops off through them. It will complete that uh, arc, will continue until such time as it is extinguished because the, the basically the power has dissipated from the batteries. It's, it's, it's a dangerous situation. Hence the title of our, you know, this battery blarney of ours. We want to try and get people out of these battery rooms alive. Well, you know, we've already talked a lot about uh, some of the safety precautions. The uh, thing that gets me, George, having come from a telecom background, uh, is that, you know, we're used to working on uh, 48 volt batteries, could be several thousand ampere hours, but uh, enter the uh, UPSs. Now they've moved out of. Uh, dedicated to batteries have moved out of dedicated battery rooms and are a lot of times located with the UPS. Sometimes they're located in an area where there's an office environment where there are untrained personnel. So a couple of things like that worries me, but a uh, thing I guess my goat most of all is the fact that the UPS manufacturers see fit to squeeze the batteries into the smallest possible space. Uh, they don't allow room for maintenance. Uh, they don't allow, uh, a lot of times, uh, suitable air movement, airflow. And if you're looking at a typical 480-volt battery uh, for a large UPS, actually, it's not a 480-volt battery. It, it, it works about something like 540 volts when you put it on float charge. Uh, or some uh, one... Uh, company I know of, I uh, thought, well, let's go with a higher voltage battery, but because they couldn't go above 480 and meet the National Electric Code uh, requirements, what they did is they they took a 960 volt battery and cut it in half, basically. So you had two 480 volt batteries, but in all purposes, it was 960 volt battery. But anyway, uh, having said that, we have a special guest that is joining us. Uh, we we're going to hold it over until George and I had finished the Blarney section. But uh, this guy knows a lot more than I ever will about uh, working with UPSs. So I'm going to bring, a, I'd like to call him a friend of mine, longtime acquaintance of mine. I think I've known this gentleman for over oh, 35 years, but I'd like to introduce Ed Rafter. Uh, now, Ed is a professional engineer, but through his career, he's worked in I like to think all aspects of the uh, battery backup industry, but more importantly, he has worked with uh, some of the people that uh, design, build large data centers, and he's also worked with the Uptime Institute, uh, which I'll let Ed explain. So if you can go over your uh, brief, your long career in about two, three minutes, Ed, I'd appreciate it. So, so thanks, Alan. It's great to see you and great to see you, George. So one of the things uh, I don't speak much about, but early on in my career, I had an opportunity for, to work for one of the transfer switch manufacturers. And we used to do a lot of testing in a laboratory. 
Um, and one of the clients that we, customers we had uh, was a subway. So we would do testing of a transfer switch being able to interrupt DC current. And I would stand in the control room and we had bulletproof glass and everything there to protect us. And I was able to watch and we actually filmed what a DC arc can do. And you're right. Uh, it, it doesn't extinguish itself. You're waiting to burn up the copper uh, or some other means where you try puffer uh, blowers, a lot of different things trying to figure out how do we interrupt the arc. But I had the uh, fortunate experience to actually see what DC can do, particularly on, in a high current situation. And that was probably my reminder, my bed. So, uh, Past that, I uh, got into consulting, and as part of that role, I've worked with a lot of uh, uh, the large UPS manufacturers and a number of the large data centers. Uh, Alan mentioned Uptime Institute. I worked both directly for Uptime Institute and indirectly uh, when Ken Brill was in charge, and that goes back probably to the late 90s when, when I started working with them. Uh, so I've seen a lot of the evolution of the UPS systems. And I know, Alan, the one we're talking about, you know, the center point grounded. Um, and uh, again, um, the, the enclosures, um, those cabinets are, are very tight. I've had the uh, experience, not positive, but I've known um, two or three people who got involved with um, um, uh, DC voltages. One blew out his elbow, um, and the last experience actually lost his life. So uh, again, I do understand. I I would say that my experience with Uptime Institute, uh, and particularly with NFPA 70E, it kind of pointed to, particularly with the battery, you have to take care of it, but taking care of it you need to really understand what you're what you're doing. And again, Alan, you said it well. Uh, I think if we talk about one of the biggest risks is that those that are working in and around or on the battery, maybe they kind of lose sight of what they're doing and, and the risks there. So again, I kind of leapfrog from working for the switchgear manufacturer to my time at uh, Uptime Institute, but I've been working in that industry for 35 plus years and um, seen a lot, good and bad. So hopefully that gives some background as to who Ed Rafter is. Well, Ed, uh, you know, uh, you and I go back a few years, but uh, the thing that uh, I, I do remember, you had presented a paper at BATCON several years ago. Uh, caught my attention. Uh, shall we call it? Uh, I don't know what the, the, the title was, but uh, the uh, you explained problem with UPSs that didn't have input isolation transformers, and uh, I, I'd like to explain that a little bit because to me that was that's that's one of the things that really thought, wow, you know, here's an accident waiting to happen. So. Maybe you could do a little bit about that. And then I'm going to have George uh, 
kind of interview you a little bit and maybe ask some other probing questions. So I, I do remember the paper. And though it may not apply as exactly today as it did then, uh, the concept is built around uh, UPS systems that came with input isolation transformers. Typically on the second day of the transformer, it, it might be uh, grounded. Let's just say that the, uh, uh, the first transformer upstream uh, might be a, a Y-grounded secondary. Uh, if you had a ground fault in the uh, uh, battery um, and you didn't have an input isolation transformer, uh, an input isolation transformer where the secondary inside the UPS may not be grounded, then you're, you, uh, again, uh, you don't have a barrier for that fault current to essentially travel back upstream to that input transformer and then back again. What you're looking at is completing a circuit, uh, a full current circuit uh, with and without input isolation. And the paper was driven around the fact that without input isolation transformers, we had a risk that we essentially could have a ground fault path that travels to the input transformer and the return could be across one of the, the phases. So you've completed that path there. And um, again, the, the risk of seeing that uh, full current while you're working inside the modular on the battery uh, was very real. So I don't know if that explained it well. If I had a copy of the drawing, it probably would be more self-explanatory. But at the time, we um, we were very sensitive to that in terms of those with and without input isolation transformers. There was a risk both to those working on it and to the reliability of the UPS, because if you created a fault, you had the potential for taking the UPS offline if you were trying to do any kind of online maintenance. So um, I, I remember the paper you're referring to for certain. I'll be honest that I remember the paper very well because I uh, I refer to it quite often when I'm doing my uh, some of my training because you explained it very well. Thank uh, you. So <laughs> it's one of my go-to papers. No, it, it, it's interesting because part, part of the problem there was that in traditionally with the the UPS wasn't it when you had an isolation transformer the the battery voltage was effectively floating. And so, the, you know, there wasn't a – so you could actually put a ground fault detector on the battery and identify any problems on that side of it if there was a problem within the battery itself, which unfortunately can happen, especially when you've got a lot of batteries and uh, if they might have been damaged on installation, for instance. But um, with the – what we're really talking about there is that we now have transformerless inputs because that uh, increases the efficiency. We don't lose – efficiency over a transformer and the objective by the designer is always to improve efficiency and make it look good. Unfortunately, killing people is not part of the efficiency plan or shouldn't be. So, uh, yeah, that's a, a very important part. But the uh, the other part is, is that what Alan was talking about was this whole design of the battery cabinets themselves. You know, we, uh, 
you, you, you're in as many more uh, of the IEEE committees than I'll ever be. But you know, we mean that we're we're continuing talking about temperature and that with for batteries, and yet when you look at a UPS battery cabinet, it's basically packed in as hard as it can be. Is there any any solution to that? Do you think, or is there anything that uh, we could be doing to make it any safer? So, uh, first of all, I have a picture on my bulletin board at the office uh, that uh, somebody sent me, and essentially it shows exactly what you're speaking to. Uh, he's holding two fingers between the top of the jar of the battery and the shelf. That's how much clearance there is on some of these. So uh, he asked the same question. Um, why doesn't, for example, the IEEE try to do something to further uh, that we need more working clearance? The, the fact of the matter is that space, you know, particularly you, you noted it with these battery cabinets now that essentially it's the same cabinet design as the electronic section, it looks very seamless and, and, and uh, continuous. Um, that's very important. And taking up a smaller footprint is also very important. So I don't know that we have a lot of influence there because again, uh, in, in large part, the, the cabinets are built to match the uh, UPS module. Uh, one of the things we have recommended over the years is put them on racks. Um, again, the, you know, the, the, the UPS and the batteries, uh, they're gonna be in their own dedicated room. Do you need that uh, cabinetized battery plant? Um, unfortunately, you know, when it comes to either specifying or purchasing you know, the UPS and cabinets, that usually is is what they purchase. There have been those over the years, though, that I'm very happy to see. They, they've gone ahead and they installed the batteries on open racks so you can get to them, you can maintain them. Um, but the battery cabinet concept, um, that's really taken hold. And I'm not sure uh, what influence we we really have there, you know? They they I think you both remember when they came out with uh, pulling the drawers out as a way to be able to get to the batteries. That in itself presents another risk because if you don't have a, a high low or something to support the shelf, you're you're dealing with you know a, again a, a tipping moment where essentially that could come crashing down on you and has. So. Um, I don't know that we have the influence over the manufacturing in that regard. Uh, when I have asked some of the UPS manufacturers about that, their response is, well, only qualified individuals should be working on those cabinets. I think we all know today that um, we're, we're actually not as well served when it comes to the battery technician certifications that we might have had, you know, maybe 10 years ago. Um, I don't think that is, is a false statement to make. Um, it's just uh, finding and training people and holding on to people is difficult. Um, so that, that level of understanding of what you're working on, uh, I, you know, dare to say, 
um, it, it, it's not as clearly understood by all who actually uh, are, are doing the work. So the risk is still there. The solution, we're somewhat at the mercy as to what the clients are, or excuse me, customers are asking for and your manufacturers are providing. It's up to the, the customer themselves to be smart enough to say, I'm, I'm not worried about having a pretty looking battery cabinet. I'd rather have them on open racks so I can get to them and serve them as they need to be served. I think one of the problems we, we see on that one, because um, you know, uh, before I theoretically retired, uh, I was involved with one of the battery monitor manufacturers, you well know, and uh, we did a lot of data center work, especially in some of the big, new, very large cloud-based data centers uh, in the Northern Virginia area. And a lot of times there, they were actually putting the uh, UPSs inside containers that were outside the building, just so that they weren't taking up space inside the building. That was the whole idea of it. And you would have something like 70 or 80 of these containers spread around the, the data center. But they still put them in a cabinet. And I, I remember asking somebody about that and saying, why are you putting them in a cabinet? Why are we not just putting the rack? And the answer was, we get the cabinets fully loaded. If we were to put them on racks, we'd have to install the batteries. I'm just going to say, now you've nailed it. Uh, again, I know I'm going to drift here a little bit, but I've heard a lot of very interesting stories where that level of expertise it's just not there regularly. And and in many cases, they will bring in, uh, uh, I'll say manpower for a word, uh, to do installations and not necessarily keep them on staff, you know, uh, full time. Uh, because, again, it's hard to find and to keep people like that. So that level of expertise, um, sadly to say, I think we've lost a lot of that. So it's it's easier for them to put it in cabinets and deliver the cabinets with the batteries in them and then not have to worry about building the racks and putting the batteries on the rack and cabling it all together. That's a that's it's a lot of work. And, and you know, are those there today that can do that, do it right and, and do it cost effectively? I think those are the challenges we're, we're facing. I, I, I think you you. you... You summed up there, Ed, and the fact was, can we do it right and can we do it cost effectively? Because the two don't go together. That's the problem with it. If you're going to do the job correctly, um, it's going to cost you money. You know, um, all these aspects of everything. It's like I always remember working with a, a very good engineer when I, after I'd been in the UK with Advance and coming back to the States. Uh, the engineer I was working with down in, um, in Dallas he was looking at a very large job, multiple 1,200 amp bays of DC power for a job. And um, what we came to was, was that if we installed it in the conventional way that people did by that time and used tie wraps to hold it down, it wasn't going to work. We had to come up with a better way of clamping those cables because the short circuit current would have been such that those cables would have been flying all over the place as a result of the short circuit current. And the, the other answer was, was to simply lace them with waxed cord. That would have worked, but we couldn't find anybody that knew how to lace, you know? 
And I wasn't going to remember. I was determined I wasn't going to remember. I did enough of it in my career without having to start teaching people how to do it, you know? You've, uh, probably, you've probably got to cut fingers to uh, prove that, George. I've still got uh, some, uh, I've still got some uh, of the I tools. Can, if, if I can just jump in briefly. Ed, uh, other thing that's puzzled me about the UPS industry is that they, there was a reluctance to accept front terminal VRLA batteries. Uh, any ideas on that? So um, I know clients who are smart enough that they have specified up front that's what they want. Again, if you don't ask, they're going to give you what their standard offering is. If you were smart enough or if you had the experience or you had somebody who can help you uh, recognize those things, those where I've seen them uh, installed. Uh, and I would say those are representative of what I would call best-in-class facilities. Uh, they usually are more knowledgeable. Uh, their people are very engaged. They're well-trained. Um, and they go the extra mile. Again, I have seen it. Uh, it is not a standard offering. And I don't think you're going to get the manufacturers to essentially give you that as an option unless you ask for it. And today, again, speaking of data centers, it's become, it's, again, it's become very competitive. Uh, we don't have enough data centers out there. There's the hyperscalers and others that are just trying to court everybody. Um, and so, again, finding a way to essentially keep overhead down, you know, just try to be competitive, that unfortunately is a strong driver. So we find people are doing, I won't say more with less, but they're trying to be very efficient. And you can describe that in so many ways. Um, so, again, these things are there and there are those who understand it. And, and they will ask for it. They want to specify that. Um, and if you have a good rep who's, who's between you and uh, the UPS manufacturers, they might put it out there and go to bat for you. But uh, most customers, they, they don't realize it. And I honestly believe that most of the UPS manufacturers, unless you ask for it, they're not necessarily going to offer it to you. There's uh, there are a couple of them are using those um, sixteen volt front access because that they, uh, and I when I first saw it I thought why are they doing that and then I realised what it was is it allowed you to build the cabinet so that it matched the depth of the UPS cabinet as well right. and it kept the size the the physical floor space down because you had these extra of, uh, Two cells effectively in each uh, each module, and you got front access out of it. But again, I, I just I see that coming to another uh, safety aspect is the weight of those batteries, and people trying to handle them or mishandle them is the other problem. Uh, I I always got this thing about I think a lot of our infant mortality in batteries is due to the way that they are handled. Uh, both in transportation and on installation, they get dropped into place. They don't get eased into place right. by people that don't know what they're doing. You need a you need the correct type of lift. Uh, well, you know, do you agree with that, or have you seen other ways to handle that? 
No, so you, you're exactly right. And getting back to my comment about for installs, the installs and stalls where uh, there are laborers there, that's who they are. They're hammers. They're there to do the heavy lifting. Generally, there might be a, a lead, one or two lead technicians who's supposed to be directing that. But I think we all know when there's a battery installation in progress, there's so much going on that you're really challenged to keep an eye on each and every person working. And that's not the time to be doing the training. So again, uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've seen it. I have felt it. I've seen in my personal experience where the aftermath of mishandling a battery, um, again, it, it's the customer who feels that pain sometime later on. You, you might do damage that doesn't show up during commissioning, but then some months later into the service life, um, you start having problems, you know, uh, cracks or crazing or um, just that there's a, a list of things. So it comes back to the same conversation. Those that install it, uh, we don't look at it as being very glamorous, but the battery is the heart of your UPS. We, ha we have more batteries today and we will have more batteries in the future. Um, and, and it's not going away. We need to get back to a place where we're training our people, our technicians, how to handle, install, maintain batteries. I, I honestly think it's an art that we're losing. Like in so many other professions, people from our generation, um, you know, we're losing that. And, and I think that's true where we are now. Well, you, you, you and I are on exactly the same length, wavelength with training, but you could, you were involved in training before, well, well, I was still training on pieces of equipment, not necessarily the whole theory of it, as I am now. But, um, you know, it is, it is quite frightening when you, you get the class in front of you, especially doing it virtually, as I'm doing now, and trying to find out just how much they know, or in most cases, how little they know, you know. And you 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 start trying to teach, and you realize by when you do get a couple of questions that you have to go back over it again because they didn't actually understand what a battery was to start with, you know. And and this is somebody that's going to be looking after them by the time they finish my course. Now, yes, that that bothers me somewhat, but um, but yeah, it's it's the safety. I keep going back to safety because you know, all my all my incidents that I've managed to escape have all happened in battery rooms as a result of something else going wrong that we didn't, you know, that even when you did the complete safety evaluation at the start, you know, before you joined us, Alan was talking about he always wants to check in a, in a battery room for a, a broom because if somebody got stuck on a, a battery or got connected across, that's the ideal tool to try and get them off, you know, or to get somebody disengaged if they're, they're, they're because that's the other part that people don't realize is if you're talking about AC, you get thrown off it if you get shocked. With DC, if you happen to have your hand around it, your hand can clench and actually grab hold of it even tighter. And I I was about to say to him at the time was that actually you need two broom handles, and he should remember that because I had a an incident where a uh, a piece of welding cable that uh, had been softened by being in a battery room for about three or four years 
uh, when we tried to move it, shorted itself from the copper bus down to the uh, cable ladder. And I had a piece of 500 MCM glowing red hot, and I had to get two broom handles, sign my two technicians with their backs to it, and just hold it so that it didn't go anyplace when it finally melted. You know, one of those times when you're grateful you're in an old building because the tiles were asbestos and it didn't burn. Yeah. Uh, so, so Edward, Edward probably remember that building as 50 Hudson Street, Ed. 50 Hudson Street, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the no, one- that, that one wasn't it, but this was 2 Broadway. Okay. It was 2 Thanks. Broadway. 50 Hudson's, yeah, I've had a couple of things in 50 Hudson as well. but Yeah, but that's, that's my hometown, so I know what you're saying. And on War Stories, I remember one occasion where I was working with, again, this was a UPS service tech. And those that work on the electronics really don't understand the battery side. And, and again, I know they would tell you otherwise, but that's probably more true than not. Uh, anyway, I had to help him. We had to replace the DC disconnect. And so however, in God's name, I got drawn into it. I essentially was holding these cables. And I just, I think maybe it was just barely a little bit of the skin on both of these touched cable and it was energized and I got bit with DC and I will tell you that is you're locked. You're locked. I don't remember how I, I got free of it, but that happened to me. And uh, again, this was pre NFPA 70. Uh, we thought we were doing the smart thing, but again, I was working with somebody who I didn't really know or trust. And uh, again, he wasn't really looking out for me either. So uh, I have felt that. And uh, I will tell you, God help those that get caught on it because it's it's not AC at all. Ed, uh, uh, I'd I'd like to get your opinion about something that's happening more and more these days, and that's the appearance of uh, lithium uh, batteries. Uh, lithium, but lithium ion, lithium metal hydride, lithium chemistry, shall we say, uh, in the data center. What's your thoughts on that? Because it scares yeah. the hell out of me. So um, again, uh, uh, there there's a couple of clients I am thinking of that um, are going through replacing UPSs right now, and uh, what I am seeing is that the default, um, let's say, proposal is based on a certain physical size or uh, KLU size UPS module and a lithium ion battery. Um, I think we've all read all the literature about all the positives, you know, with lithium ion. Um, Again, lighter weight, smaller footprint, and so on and so forth. Uh, So it looks very attractive. And, And particularly today with conversations about sustainability and so forth, uh, again, it, it, it's a movement. I, I don't know how else to describe it. Um, they're, they're out there. Uh, again, I will caveat that by saying that those who really have been working closely on maintaining their batteries, monitoring their batteries, they're holding off for the moment. So when a cycle has come around, um, you know, they're, they're staying with the lead acid. I think when it comes time to replace the UPS itself, um, you know, they're, they're going to probably be following suit because there's, there's, 
quite a lot of pressure right now to go uh, lithium ion, particularly in a new UPS purchase. Again, the lighter weight means your structure floors don't have to be as robust. You know, the smaller footprint, you know, putting aside the clearance conversation, um, then you start getting into the, the, the these life claims. Uh, some of them, it, it sounds ludicrous. We, we, we haven't had UPS batteries and servers for over 20 years that I know of in this country. And yet there's, there's that, that's the claim that's being made. It's discouraging. Uh, but I think like some of us, you try to bring, you know, a balance to your clients in terms of all this is true, uh, but understand here is some of the, the unknowns. And my statement to all is we don't know what we don't know yet on lithium ion batteries. And I'm not very popular maybe for saying that. And those who agree with me would probably be of the same, but it's, it's true. We, we thought we had it figured when we went from invented lead acid to VRLA. Nobody seems to remember what we went through when we did that. Um, we're going through something similar. It, it, it's, it's coming, but the race there, it's, uh, it's surprising. I would have thought we were more cautious and so forth. And uh, again, the end users, those that have to operate are asking me, well, what am I supposed to do? Well, as you both know, that document, we're, we're getting close to finishing it, but it's still, it's still not done yet. That's also something that's a little unusual in my opinion. We're, we're out there doing these things, and we don't have the standards yet to back it all up. We're relying on you know, maybe a biased source to tell us how to take care of these things and how to do the things. I, I worry about the safety aspects, but... You know, to me, the claims of a uh, 20-year life battery, when the average lifespan of a UPS is probably seven years or even that, and uh, the fact that it's capable of 10,000 cycles when a typical UPS installation may go through one or two cycles a year, basically. So I don't think that's applicable, but I don't know if we have to, we have to, we have a couple more minutes, uh, and I don't want to steal George's thunder here. Yet, but uh, uh, I've got one. I've got one last thing I, I think to talk to Ed about is it's to do with what we're just talking about, and that is the um, you know one of the the safety aspects we have to consider when we go into a battery room is what is the fire prevention method. If we have a fire in that battery room, what is the the method by which we are going to you know uh, do we, is it going to be our responsibility for, to use a fire extinguisher? Do we have the correct fire extinguisher for the job? Uh, or is there an installed form of um, basically containment, some containment system? It used to be halon, you know, I remember those days, but that's no longer. And what is applicable for those new lithium batteries? Now, Ed and I remember the, the IEEE meeting a few weeks ago, we had a presentation there where um, Jim McDowell described dumping gallons and gallons of water on top of it, even although lithium itself reacts very badly to water, as long as the battery has remained sealed before it's got to the point that it's actually ruptured, the only way to cool it down fast enough is to dump gallons of water on it. 
has anybody thought about that inside some of these tower blocks where they want to put it? You know? So um, from what I've seen and from the design perspective, a deluge of water is the solution. Um, I've, I've heard of attempts with other suppressants unsuccessful. So again, uh, if you're talking about putting out the fire, I would ask you to think about, you know, the cleanup and what does that mean? So, you know, conversations like compartmentalization of your critical UPS systems. Uh, again, it's I'm drifting here and I apologize, but there, there's going to need to be more thought in terms of the deployment of UPS with lithium ion batteries and its, its mission, uh, the, the critical load upstairs, you know, again, where you're dealing with A, B power and, and how do you make sure that the A UPS doesn't compromise the B UPS? Um, uh, I just think that becomes more uh, concern and, and a, a design subject. Uh, I just don't know that everybody sees it as clearly, but the water is exactly what I understood as well and seen. Well, well, there's a there's a ship drifting around the Azores somewhere at the moment uh, with a load of uh, batteries on it. That that will have no shortage of uh, water uh, to try and put the fire. That's true. Is that the one with the cars, the Porsches? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I I guess I'm not going to get my Porsche delivered by the time for my birthday here. No, not Uh, this year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, but but no, you're right, Ed. That. Exactly. What we're talking about here is that we have to be considering the safety a lot more when we talk about the design of these battery rooms. We've we've talked about the things we do with an existing battery room that you have to go in. And I, I, I when I do the training, I, I've got about six different items, which includes our own personal dress that we should be wearing in order to. Uh, you don't you don't go in as as Alan said earlier. You don't go in wearing a lot of nylon-based clothes and then try to put dark flash gear on top of it. That's not the way to do it, you know. Um, you need to have a, some form of back support when you start lifting these batteries. Don't try to do it without it. The, the correct shoes, the correct, you know, all that part of it, uh, correct gloves. Um, so it's, but the, in the end, it comes down to it that we also have to get the design right so that we don't put our people at risk. And I think that's what's missing at the present moment. We don't we don't have people doing that level of design with that experience. So anyway, to we're going to have to wind up in a few minutes yes. here. But uh, Ed, in in your mind, what's the single biggest hazard in a battery location? So I've thought about that, and I don't want to um, dodge it. But I will say that um, it depends on the battery, um, whether it's uh, uh, VRLA, vented lead acid. It depends if it's a legitimate uh, intended battery room or some closet space. It depends on whether it's in a cabinet. Uh, I would say our biggest risk is a lack of understanding by those who are tasked with servicing and keeping an eye on the battery, particularly, um, you know, the operations people, are they looking in? Uh, Again, we touched on a little bit with the broom handles. Uh, There was a time when you relied on your senses when you walked into a battery room. Um, You know, that was one of your big clues. 
uh, it's it's all part of that training and that, like I said, the knowledge base of those that are given the responsibility. Uh, I think that's right now our biggest risk. Um, you could it, could it could be a gas, I mean, a hydrogen gas issue. It, it could be, uh, again, uh, an art flash. It, it, you could hurt your your back irreparably if you're you know not handling them correctly. Uh, again, uh, I think it's it it comes down to the to the, the training and qualifications of of the people as probably our biggest risk right now. Um, and again, um, I have thought about this, Alan, and and how would I, you know, sum it up? And I I come to that conclusion. It that's probably the common risk in all cases. Are, are the people properly trained and qualified? And are they mindful of the risk? Um, you know, situational awareness when you walk in the room. Are 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 they there? I don't know. I honestly think that's something uh, we need to ask ourselves. Well, um, I, I certainly agree with you there, hundred percent. And that prompts me to think maybe we should be doing a podcast uh, on training, if we haven't already done so. Uh, and if we do, I'd really love to have you back again, Ed. I'd look uh, forward to it. I uh, really appreciate your input. I don't know if George has any closing remarks, but uh, as always, it's been great talking to Ed. And just one question for you: uh, that uh, waistcoat you're wearing. Mm-hmm. Would that have been purchased in the Aran Islands? Uh, no, I got this one at Orvis, but you nailed it. Because if you look over my shoulder, I got those from Ireland would understand. Uh, you'd have a picture on the wall of the Pope, and you'd have a picture on the wall of this gentleman over here, John F. Kennedy. And if you look over here on this shelf, that's my mother and her two sisters. Uh, my mother was the oldest of 16. So. Uh, I'm very proud to say I'm as uh, uh, I the parts were made in Ireland and assembled in the United States is how I describe myself. So, well, um, thanks again, Ed. And we'll we'll talk about that again over a pint of Guinness. For sure. Can I can I come as well then, please? Yes. Well, again, we're all Celts. Yes, we are indeed. So anyway, uh, I, I. I just couldn't resist. And also, I can't resist saying slauncher. Well, uh, you know, March, after all, is uh, Irish American Heritage Month. So celebrate it responsibly. <laughs> For sure. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Ed. Yeah, thanks, Ed, very much indeed. That was a great time. Thank you. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.